Hey, Stephen Kinsella. Hey, Jeff. Well, we were talking about the uh, the big lawsuit this morning. You know, the the, the Marvin Gaye suit against uh, you know that the guy who sang that song, uh, Blurred Lines. Blurred Lines. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I guess it's been going on for 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 some time, and uh, I guess the jury decided that it was just outright theft and therefore a violation of of, of copyright. What's what's your sense of this? Yeah, I think they they awarded seven million dollars of damages. Even though I think that the Marvin Gaye estate wanted twenty or something like that. Um, everyone's up in arms about it because they think this is outrageous. Um, uh, but of course, it's what's outrageous is copyright law. This is a fairly predictable outcome of copyright law. This is a one in a series of what seem to be shocking or outrageous decisions and results of copyright law over the over the last several years and decades. Um, it shouldn't be surprising at this point, but everyone acts all surprised. They want the fainting couch, you know, when when this happens. But um, it's really a predictable result of of copyright. Um, I was I sent you some links earlier to some other one of the funniest examples. Well, well we know about the uh, the minute work song uh, Down Under, which uh, um, which were, they were accused of plagiarizing this Kookaburra sits in the old gum tree kind of folk song because yeah. a little. I, I, I hadn't heard this case before. Oh yeah, there's a little whiff of that in that little flute, the flute riff in the middle of the song, and um, they lost in, in a copyright suit, and it devastated uh, one of the singers because he thought he, you know, he was he was accused of plagiarism, and he would he, one of his greatest legacies <laughs> was just destroyed. I think he ended up dying. <laughs> Some people think <laughs> he he committed suicide or died because of this. Um, but one of the funniest ones was, uh, or the craziest ones, is this. You know, this famous John Cage song. It's called Four Minutes and Thirty Three Seconds." Are you familiar yes. with that? Yeah, just... pure, pure silence, right? Well, no, but the, now if you look at so there was another group, um, the Zombies or the Wombies, something like that, that did a one minute of silence song, and they were sued by the estate <laughs> of John Cage for copying their silence. And they said, no, yeah. no, no, ours isn't silence, ours is ambience, or vice versa. Yours is really ambient noise, and ours is just pure silence. And yours is analog silence, and ours is digital. And they ended up settling for over $100,000. It was crazy. Yeah, uh, that's crazy. Well, you notice this: oh, these suits happen uh, only when once the song becomes enormously popular. Yeah. It seems like just an, an attempt uh, by, uh, by kind of has-beens to, to loot the, the newest deep pockets they, they can. Right, it's it's. I don't know if you made this point or someone else, but it's it's in a way the uh, or maybe it was a Facebook comment. Um, it's a way the old generation it keeps parasiting off of the younger generation, right? So these these old washed up sort of stars that they just find a way to extend their monopoly. On the other hand, you could say that all the money, not all, but a lot of the money made by Robin Thicke and Pharrell on this through blurred lines, they made probably more money than they would have because of copyright in the first place. So in a way. It's just the copyright, the copyright bandits shifting money around between. That's that's pretty funny. Although although this the blurred line song is is routinely looted, you know, all over the country in every every club and. Correct. Uh, I mean, you know, I was recently in Miami at some 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 big dance party, you know, and the DJ is sampling music so fast, uh, you know, sometimes you know five, ten, fifteen seconds of, of of music and just turning them over and over and over in this kind of. This 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 rinse and repeat, you know, right. uh, genre-based uh, DJing technique that everybody uses. Then it's it's all so fast and frenzied and crazy and and music on top of each other and you know this sampling that and this part of the art, right? Yeah. And well, there's just, 
there's people all up in there's all no way that anybody's paying you know? attention to Kanye. To uh, what? Like I think Bob Dylan and other people are all up in arms saying this is going to put a chilling effect on speech and creativity. Like, well, like but the, but these, first they've heard about this, you know. No, but these suits they date back like forty years. I mean, yeah. I, I just watched a video that had something like top ten uh, ripoffs, uh, and and they were chronicling music from you know from the from like the nineteen fifties. These suits have been going on forever, and and they mostly win, and they're mostly settled, mostly out of court. Right. Um, and and they're mostly mostly won by uh, uh, in a, in a, it's sort of a, in a way that that transfers money from the newest star to the to the has been star or to, from the from the greater uh, star to the lesser star and everybody just moves on with history and it doesn't stop anything and it won't stop anything. Well, the, you know the most recent one before this was just a few months ago. It was this Sam Smith song. Have you heard it? It's a Stay with Me. It's a really nice sort of gospel-y sounding um, soul song, and Tom Petty, you know, who had the song "I Won't Back Down," they contacted them, and I don't know if they sued or threatened to sue, but he wanted co-authorship credit, and he got it, and they paid some money. Um, yeah, and it obviously is not a copy. This is the thing you and I were talking about. Is a lot of my uh, libertarian friends um, they say this is outrageous because it's not a copy. Um, now, on the other hand, I've had libertarian friends who said that that was just a ripoff. So this shows how subjective these judgments are about whether one sure. song is similar to another. And of course, there's always similarities, as you as you mentioned. This is how we learn and how music develops and how styles get developed and how themes progress. People always copy, borrow, remix from each other. Well, you know what's interesting about about this particular case of Blur Lines? It's it's the same sort of tempo. In other words, the the beats per minute are identical to "Gotta Give It Up," you know. Um, and um, oh, hold on. Um, You're obviously making some earth-shaking comments here. No, that doesn't. So, uh, um, the tempo of the song is being similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the beats per minute are identical. Okay, so you could have slowed this up, but sped, sped those. You know, that's just that's just sort of the way it works. <coughs> um, that's hardly anything you steal from anybody. I also think it happened to be in the same key, but I think it's true for most most pop music. Actually, it tends to be in you know sort of uh, an easy key for for the guitar players and stuff like that. I mean, that's just completely normal. And as for the beat itself, yeah, it's it's like. You know, very similar, but that's just called a genre of music. I mean, you know, if I t if I turn on the Google Play station for you know the radio station Caribbean Island Vacation, you, you know there'll be there'll be like two hundred songs that sound almost identical to each other. <laughs> that's just the way stuff works. Well, and I think it depends upon who the listener is. Obviously, like I said, I, one of my friends said that this song is a complete ripoff of. Uh, of the Marvin Gaye song, and I don't really know what ripoff means. It's obviously not, not a duplicate, identical copy. Uh, and other people say there's no similarity whatsoever. Now, as an intermediate, I guess, listener, to me, there's some similarity. There's some kind of tribute or some kind of similar style. They both have cowbells, but they're not identical, obviously. But the, the fallacy is, first of all, the idea that there would be something wrong if it was close to identical. I mean, every now and then I hear a cover song, some group will do a cover of another famous song, and I love those. Some of those are fantastic. I mean, what in the world well, is wrong with every, every, Not just every now and then, Stefan. I mean, nowadays, if, if anything becomes any <laughs> remotely close to being popular, 
you know, there, there's a flurry of covers that appear almost immediately on YouTube. And, and once a song, is it, by the time a song is, you know, become number one or in the top ten, you'll find sometimes hundreds of, of uh, copies. Well, of it this online. is what uh, all of human cultural experience is about. When we get together in church and sing hymns and Christmas carols, <laughs> we're we're doing covers of an old song. Yeah, doing covers, right? For it to become popular, people have to learn it. When people sing karaoke, they're doing covers. When they hum it, hum it to themselves or sing a, a lullaby to their kid, they're doing covers. Um, yeah. People have this assumption that that's plagiarism or that that's wrong. If you make money off of it, I guess. Um, I don't know why libertarians are against people making money all of a sudden. Um, but one thing I think w w that would be helpful for people to understand is copyright law is not just a prohibition on so-called plagiarism or on literal reproduction. And if you simply go to the just Google Copyright Act, look at Section 106. It lists the rights of the copyright holder, and it's not just reproduction. It's reproduction… But that includes literal reproduction, but also more general reproduction of elements of the original, like the plot of a novel or the plot of a, a book that's made into a movie um, or the look and feel of a software program. But it also covers the derivative works, which is a work that's based upon the original. Uh, influenced and by all it. Those, go ahead. Yeah, just influenced by it in some level. In fact, in the early part of the 20th century, among the highbrow... Uh, ruling class elite set in the world of music. <clears throat> the presumption was that a copyright meant that you could not be influenced at all by any previous composition, which is one of the reasons that you saw the birth in the 1920s of uh, you know pointillistic uh, you know twelve-tone row music that was so like ridiculously original that it wasn't even familiar and it lost, you know, basically that solid music ended up sort of losing massive audiences for so for serious um, music. And that was a presumption and a lot of it extended from, I mean there are a lot of reasons for the, for atonalism and its rise, but part of it was this this belief that originality now uh, was, was required by law. Uh, that could be, and so, so when people complain about the uh, stifling effect, the uh, uh, the effect on creative expression of these kind of decisions, it's been around for a long time. The copyright law has always distorted culture. Um, you know, it's given rise to so many effects that we take for granted now. The, the the way that Hollywood cranks out one boring sequel after another to a hit movie because they have the copyright on it, and that's a safer choice um, yeah. than doing something you know more daring or original. Um, uh, by the way, when these, when these, uh, when one song, when one performance artist steals another, we tend to personalize it, but it's not really uh, uh, Marvin Gaye or whatever suing personally. Uh, uh, you know, what's the name, Robin Thicke or whatever, right? I mean, these are these are these are corporations suing each other. I think in this case, it was the estate of Marvin Gaye. Um, Right. I'm not sure why it wasn't a, a, a record company, but yeah, it's usually not the original artist. Yeah, so it's not even clear that the, the artists themselves benefit in any sense. I mean, even if they do win these suits, it's it's usually these are these are these are the suits versus the suits, right? Absolutely. And, and another uh, example um, uh, of of the way copyright could um, cause this forced originality in the when when software started being treated as copyright copyrightable subject matter in the 70s and 80s, um, 
then you had this practice of what's called clean rooms, and a clean room means you hire a bunch of software programmers and you artificially separate them from the whole world. Like you don't let them have access to the journals, to other other companies' software programs, and you make them design their software from scratch, basically. And you right. keep records so you can prove that. That means so that if later <coughs> on they're accused of copyright infringement because there's a feature or a subroutine of their software that is similar to what someone else has in their software, if they're accused of copyright infringement, they can prove that they didn't have access to it, and therefore they couldn't right. have copied it, and therefore the, the similarity is functional or just coincidental or it's just of necessity. Like if two programmers are trying to solve a similar problem, they're going to come up right. with a similar… Which solution. technically… I mean, how does copyright law treat that? Because… Um, you've often mentioned that IP is a kind of a universal right, uh, regardless of whether you've been influenced by it. The standards of whether you've been influenced by something that has a way of proving the existence of, you know, theft. But but actually, copyright itself um, can be violated even without influence, right? No, that's pat so patent law. You can be. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you are even aware of the original invention that's patented. As long as you have something that's similar to what someone else has a patent on, um, you can be uh, you can be uh, liable for infringement. In copyright, you have to have actually copied something from the original, which means you had to have access to it. That's why one of the elements of proof of a copyright lawsuit is is access. You have to show. Um, you can't just show similarity. Uh, now, if, if 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 you had an, a, an exact duplicate copy of a, a CD or uh, a software program or a novel, word for word, bit for bit, then the likelihood of access is maybe presumed because it's so unlikely that you could have done that um, independently and originally. But generally, you do have to establish access. Um, so if you show access, which means if there's a popular song in, in, the, in, in the culture… Everybody's got access to that, then you right? Can, you can assume access. Um, and right. uh, uh, like I think it was funny, in the, in, the, in the Sam Smith case, I think he said he had never heard the Tom Petty song. And maybe that's true, but it just seems strange for an actual artist or a musician to say he had never even heard this fairly popular song. It was two or three decades old, but even I've heard that song, you know, Stand by, Stand Your Ground or whatever the Tom Petty song is. So the reason he was saying that was his lawyers had probably had advised him, don't admit that you have, that, have access to it. So, yeah. Well, there, there, there's, there's, what's, what's funny, too, is that it will probably get away with, like, outright uh, co copying if you're not living in the same world and the same genre uh, as, as the original just because nobody ever takes notice of it. I mean, one of the things that's very interesting to me about um, religious uh, liturgical music that uh, came to be uh, into existence in the 1970s, played in Catholic churches all over the country, is that many of the themes uh, were drawn from sitcom uh, theme songs. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, like almost like almost really identical. Uh, definitely it's an infringement. But, like, nobody really took note of this. I mean, it's just not like the pop star is going to steal a sewer religious, religious publisher because it's not actually competing. You know, it's just a, a straight-out ripoff. Right. You and I were talking... It's not for money, it's not for profit either, so probably they're assuming there may be a fair use defense. Maybe there is, maybe there's not. Who knows? Yeah. 
But you and I were talking earlier about, you know, I mentioned to you that uh, almost all the music written between about 1650 and I would say about, yeah, about 1760 or something like that, generally considered to be the, you know, the period of the Baroque. Uh, I mean, uh, it's overwhelming. You know, once once you, you look at all the composers all over Europe, they're all borrowing from each other. All, all the music sounds more or less kind of the same orchestrations, um, approaches, structures, and this is how, how music grew up. And this is how um, they, people learned from each other, they complimented, complimented each other. But that, there was like, you know, 110, 120 years in which almost all the music all over the all of Europe sounded identical, just a little, a little bit of French flavor, a little bit of German flavor, sort of English in places, but um, you know the Baroque, and, and we know this just by turning on a Baroque uh, station on uh, Google Play or Pandora, or whatever. You know, it's like you know what you're going to get. You know, right. and that's hardly unusual. Um, imitation, you know, is bound up with with in the history of music from. Well, I was going to say from the 16th century, but really it goes back to the 12th century, and really it goes back as as far as our, our records indicate, since the origin of notation in the 6th and 7th centuries. You know. <laughs> well, you, you know, you know, you and I were talking the other day about um, um, uh, racist effects of different laws, like the drug war, etc. But mm -hmm. you could, you in a way, if you think about. Um, um, the remix culture, right? It's heavily dominated by the sort of um, African American styles of music, hip hop and remixing, and that's no, one that's of been the true for most years. Yeah. Yeah. hardest hit by copyright law now. So in a way, even copyright law has a disparate impact upon race. So you could say copyright law is racist. Well, you know, and I, I, I don't know. I think you and I probably I've, I've read something about this, but. In many ways, um, you know, you see these kind of revolts take place against copyright law in the history of 20th century music. Um, like jazz, you know, initially when it came out was kind of, uh, you know, a marginal form of music that didn't didn't uh, seek to copyright itself, and then it became sort of institutionalized, and you know, the the corporations took over, the suits took over, and suddenly everything was locked down. And then after World War II, you saw the invention of sort of this bebop culture. You know, uh, well, I think rock was that same way in its early years. But then the bebop came along in the 1950s, specifically uh, rejecting copyright, and and they would all quote each other in solos. And part mm -hmm. part of part of the idea, the ethos of the music was that it was was in the commons, that it was not written out. That's what improvisation uh, was all about. And um, but then it came to be written out, and by the 1970s it was all over. Suddenly, all the all the music of of, of the of the early bebop music, you know, uh, was locked down by under IP. Uh, I mean, unsuccessfully, right? I mean, there are jazz combos playing in your hometown right now that are that are um, that are uh, making use of of all the old standards without any acknowledgement of uh, or any payment of royalties. Of course. Yeah, but you know there, there are these basically um, uh, copyright uh, hitmen that go around. You know, they'll walk into a, a, a hair salon or a, a restaurant, and if they hear music playing on the loudspeakers, and they will check and make sure that this company has a, a, royal, a license, 
And if they don't, they'll, they'll get sued. So they, they go around just basically extorting money from people just for using the music that's out there. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 funny. Well, there's also the problem that you know there's certain musical geniuses who can hear things one time and and re repeat them, right? You know, without ever having looked at them. I mean, this is the famous story behind one of the most uh, famous pieces of the of the uh, Renaissance, uh, rather the High Middle Ages, was a piece by by uh, by Allegri called um, Miserere Nobis. And and it was held tightly under control of the Vatican without allowing any manuscripts out. And um, the legend is anyway that that if you if you carried it outside the Vatican, that you'd be subject to excommunication. So that even the singers and <laughs> sung once once a year on, on Good Friday, even the singers were not permitted to to take them take the can, can, can you sing a little bit of it here for us? I know that you're good at this. Let's liberate this. Release it to the world. Yeah, no, <laughs> well, it's a little bit complicated. I would require about 40 voices here. But anyway, the legend is that on Good Friday, Mozart himself went to the Vatican, heard it one time, and um, you know immediately wrote it out, of course, as as any any you know really competent musician could do, and published it. And uh, um, so the edition that we have of this of this piece of music is actually Mozart's own edition. That's the one that's most frequently sung. Did he publish it as his own work or just uh, a transcription? They just released it through his through his publisher. No, I mean he no he attributed it to Allegri and everything. Okay. But it, you know he he took it out of the the physical possession of the Vatican just because I mean music is not physical. Music does not exist on a page. It exists as in the air or whatever. So. Um, and so, but anyway, Mozart was not excommunicated, as the legend goes, and this is probably some of this is apocryphal, right? The the Pope, you know, was was touched and said, "Well, yes, this music belongs to the world." And just kind of <laughs> well, the um, uh, there's I, certain aspects of that story that seem a little bit fake, but anyway, it's a great it's a great story. I think so too, uh, and of course, the the church, as we have <coughs> discussed, ought to release um, copyright in everything that they have instead of trying to keep the. Uh, their their information <laughs> protected yeah. by copyright. Um, I don't know if you I don't know if you read this part of Atlas Shrugged. You know, Ayn Rand was a big advocate of copyright and patent, but there's a scene in Atlas Shrugged where one of the uh, one of the producers who's gone on strike is a guy named Richard Haley, and he's a famous composer. And, oh, Symphony uh, Number no. Five or whatever. Like Richard Haley's third con third uh, third yeah, yeah. whichever one it was like the one that he had never finished. Right, the one that people were, were whistling on the bus and singing. Yeah, you know, like, he, someone was humming it or whistling it on the exactly train. Hear it, it. And I'm thinking, well, this guy was committing copyright infringement of Richard Haley's intellectual property, according to Ayn Rand. So he right. couldn't maintain a, a story that didn't involve infringement of IP. And in fact, when, when um, Dagny and um, Hank are trying to reverse engineer Galt's motor you know, that they found abandoned in that warehouse... That would be patent infringement, of course, according to her views on patents. So um, it's full of you can't you can't consistently advocate this stuff. If you had a world that really enforced patent and copyright and fully and consistently, then the human race would just die off like right away. Yeah, <laughs> wouldn't even survive. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, it's art certainly wouldn't survive. Um, None of it. None of it. We never would have progressed. We wouldn't have gotten we beyond. Didn't communicate. We could. You'd have to have permission to use the alphabet. I mean, it's just uh, you'd have per, have permission to everything you wanted to do. To use clothing. To use to build a house. To use fire to cook food. Those are someone's ideas. You know. Yeah. 
So you're willing to concede that the that the that the um, the lawsuit was settled correctly. You just think that the laws on which uh, the thing was brought are inherently unjust. Well, I th well the, the the law is inherently um, first of all this is statutory law or legislation which is not like um, the result of a of a kind of common law process which could result in, which can generate more objective rules based upon concrete fact situations and trying to do justice. In these in these suits, you have basically a, a, a court trying to apply trying to apply the, the words of a statute, which are just words written on paper by a bunch of legislators, which have nothing to do with justice, and they're inherently vague and ambiguous in, in many cases. Mm. Uh, so I don't know if there is an objectively right result. Um, if, as a lawyer, I could see an argument made by both sides, yeah, you could argue that it's not close enough to be copyright infringement. You could argue that it is close enough to be copyright infringement. And then the fact finder has to make a decision, which is the problem part of the problem with the system that it's inherently ambiguous and non-objective law. Um, it is possible that on appeal, if, if this is appealed, that uh, it will be reversed. But yeah. it may not be. No, I, mean, I would think it, it would just, just be law settled. Is, right? Yeah. It, just be, it might be appealed, but I mean, it, I don't know. I mean, can you, can you just settle? Can you just you know pay... Pay out, uh, you know, sort of go away money at this point. Uh, so the, the so the jury the jury gave an award which was less than was asked for. I think mm. twenty million was was the desired amount, and they awarded seven something million. Yeah. Um, uh, in by the way, in that in that in that John Cage case, I think that because the uh, John Cage piece is four minutes and thirty three seconds long, and the alleged infringing piece of silence was one minute. Then the idea was that they they owed one fourth of the royalties because one minute is about one one minute of silence is about one fourth of four minutes of silence. Uh, so the way they come up with these these awards is crazy. But I think probably one of two things will happen. Um, the um, the the corporations that own the rights to the Robin Thicke Thorell song may go to the uh, plaintiff and they will say, "We're going to appeal this," and we. We very well may win on appeal. Let's say we have a 90% chance of winning on appeal or a 75% chance of winning on appeal, and it will drag it out, and you may lose everything. But we'll so we'll we'll give you, you know, half a million dollars now to make it go away to save us all trouble. So it could be settled, uh, which would be a shame in a way because it's going to kind of affirm the precedent that was established by the jury. It'd be better for us if they would be appealed and fought and. And the, yeah, but you know, then again, these precedents ex have existed for for half a century. I mean, I I didn't know this entirely until just this morning when I started looking up uh, the history of these cases. This has been going on for a very long time. It's nothing yes. new, and it's not going to change it. You know, uh, you know, Stephen, when you and I talk about this, we always get the same the same issue because people try to like overthink all this stuff. They go, wait a minute, without copyright, I mean, we'd li be living in a world of like absolute uh, madness where nobody could ever make any money. You'd come out with a hit song. And and instantly everybody would just immediately steal it and record it and put it on online and there'd be covers all over the place and everybody would use it and and then and then artists wouldn't make any money and there would never be any new music. I mean this is the kind of scenario all the time. But in a strange way, that does seem to be the world we're moving to. I mean, with the amount of covers that are online and Taylor Swift, as I said, you know, she can't come out with a new song without having, you know, hundreds of people 
uh, do covers of the, of the song. And it influences many, many other new songs, and somehow she's still making money, although she's a big IP person. But, you know, of course, they all are. I mean, or you could say the opposite. You could say that the danger is now that under a copyright system, if you do come out with a popular song and you do make millions of dollars, you're almost, <laughs> I won't say almost certain, but it's, there's a good chance that someone will come after you, a copyright troll, basically, and take some of your earnings. That's actually true, and this is a good example of Perfect that. Perfect example. Yeah. Actually, actually, very, very dangerous for, for everybody on all sides. But a, but a pure culture of, of free imitation or free emulation, um, I'm, I'm not sure how it, different it would be from the, from the, from the cre present system, except that you just sort of remove the threat and the violence from it. I have to imagine that there's a lot of musicians. No, there's not sophisticated legal experts usually, but they they get a sense over time of from cases like this. They're basically warning shots. You know, they're they're, they're they want to make an example. They want to make people afraid to copy. So I can imagine a lot of young musicians and and performers trying to brainstorm and come up with new ideas in the studio, and then there's this nagging concern. Wait a minute, that might sound too similar to this, or maybe some producer will say. I'm well, afraid know, that sounds too similar to this. You need to change that. So they're going to say, well, wait a minute. What can I do? What's safe? And that's got to put a big dampening effect. Oh, on it's, it's a huge uh, issue for, um, you know, well, it's, it, nobody thinks about this, but um, for, like, band music on, on halftime shows, uh, this is a big deal because a lot of the local band directors will, will write their own music, right? But if they, the worry is... That their band become and which works great. They can use all kind of pop songs, and they can't afford to pay the the absurd prices, you know, that are that are associated with uh, going through regular copyright channels. So they'll they'll write halftime shows based on popular music for their own local high schools, right? Whatever, and parents, right? But the problem is, then they go to a competition, and if they win the competition, they go on to a bigger competition. Next thing you know, uh, they're performing at you know the Super Bowl. Uh, halftime show or something like that, and then and then bankruptcy. You know, it's just like then it's just absolute death and destruction that happens after something like that. So, <clears throat> band directors get actually very intimidated by this prospect, and so what they do is they resort to writing uh, music based on uh, uh, tunes in the public domain. You know, right, right, folk music, uh, uh, hymns. You know. Uh, familiar pop, popular hymns that are in the in the public domain and and, and folk music and, and 19th century melodies, uh, you know traditional Americana and that kind of stuff. It was one of the reasons that uh, you you see halftime shows dominated by this by this kind of stuff rather than pop music. Yeah, well, every now and then I talk to a defender of copyright, and if you if you just give an example of one of these outrageous uh, cases and it's obviously unjust, sometimes they'll say something like. Well, just write your own music. Like so, so they they want to blow the problem off. They want to say, well, why should you have to copy someone? Someone else just if you just come up with original work, then you don't have anything to worry about. So it's like well, they want to ignore the injustice of this. Well, there's another fact too, Stefan, is that audiences don't actually like original music. That's a slight problem. Well, you know, they, they want to have something they they like that they're familiar with that they can relate to. They want something that's that that means something to them, not just not just original original stuff. I mean, if you've ever been to uh, you know a, a local Christmas uh, uh, Christmas concert by you know the high school band or college band or the big church in town or whatever, 
um, you can play all the original music you want, and people will be asleep and bored and 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 desperate, uh, you know, to get away. But then, as soon as some something familiar comes along, like a, like a Christmas medley, then suddenly everybody faces light up. Everybody's having a good time. Everybody loves it. People have to have some some hook into the art, you know. Well, I mean, another another too freaky. Another simple and good example is just this happy birthday song, right? Which everyone we've learned it from our childhood, and we we know what happy birthday is. Right. But if the song is sung in a movie, um, then royalties, royalties have to be paid to some copyright holder who claims copyright. I think it's Sony or someone like that claims to own the song Happy Birthday. If you go to restaurants now, uh, sometimes they will they ha- they make up this new Happy Birthday song, which is it's okay, but it's not the original, you know. So they do that just to avoid being sued. So um, and so the reason the reason I guess that you and I can sing Happy Birthday to each other in a private a private party, but we can't go to the, the local Olive Garden and hear the same thing is what? It's the difference between a private space and a commercial space, or what? Public, public performance. That's a public performance. Um, so, these guys are basically extorters. They will, they, they're not going to go after you and I. They can't, they can't do that. Although, if you record it, you know, if you have a video recording of your kid's birthday party and you put it on YouTube, maybe you, you, Google or YouTube may take the video down. Because there's a, there's a, there's a recorded, uh, copyrighted song in the background. Yeah, but YouTube used to be a lot stricter about this stuff. I, you know, it's one of the things that's actually interesting to me is how the the terms of service of YouTube has changed over the last five years. Used to there were you know two or three options. You know, I own this piece. This piece Correct. is in the public domain. I've you know received the appropriate permissions. But now there's like forty five different options. Um, and, and what it reminds me of, you know, everyone a little more, you know, different. But this is a, you know, a cover that is using the same, ba- you know, background, but not the Im- any images and so on and so on. And what it reminds me is of, of increasing numbers of exceptions that grew up around anti-usury laws of the Middle Ages as we approached the Renaissance. You know, it right. took several hundred years, but increasingly, you know. Uh, Theologians and uh, philosophers and jurists would make exceptions for how you could uh, earn and pay interest under the following conditions, and eventually the law just became so weak it became obsolete. Nobody cared anymore. I think that's one reason why the uh, copyright industry fights for fair use law to be clarified and expanded, which a lot of people are pushing for. They're saying, "Listen, we need to clarify what fair use is." Um, so that we don't have to have a, a lawsuit every time to determine whether the use was fair. Right now, there's a, a four factors. The, the law says the copyright law says that um, in the U.S. fair law, fair use it's called fair dealing in other countries, but it lists like these four factors that the judge would have to consider. One is mm-hmm. the extent of the work. One's how much it hurts the market. One's whether it's commercial or not or educational. There's all these factors, and so there's never a bright line rule unless you have three or three or four of the four factors and that are clear. Uh, if it's half and half, you don't know what a jury would do. So people have advocated, like, let's clear, clarify fair use. Let's make it clear that the following types of uses, like for documentaries, whatever, could be considered fair use, um, and let's expand it. Um, for example, <laughs> um, if you own a cell phone, should you be able to unlock it <laughs> and hack, you know, to to use your own SIM card in there? That's actually right now a violation of the copyright law. Um, 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 except for when the the the, uh, the the librarian of Congress 
issues her every three-year ruling about whether or not to include that, and she didn't last time she did before. Uh, it's ridiculous. Um, so I think the reason the copyright industry fights that is because they're worried about this phenomenon you mentioned. If the fair use defense got stronger and broader over time, those types of defenses could end up yeah. in copyright law. Right, and eventually the whole thing just becomes irrelevant. I mean, it's, it's, it's a weird kind of situation now because it's less relevant than it's ever been before. There's never been so much imitation, so much just outright stealing. And well, in a, in a way, the internet itself <laughs> is the biggest is is more analogous to this threat to copyright law, right? Because it's not a law, but it's a it's a mechanism that makes it easy for people to copy and to get away with it. Um, right. And and so in a way, that's why the copyright industry basically wants to kill the internet. That's why they supported SOPA and PIPA and the Trans-Pacific Partnership, right. uh, and ACTA, the Anti-Counterfeiting Trade Agreement, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP. Which all have draconian uh, copyright provisions, which basically would restrict internet freedom in the name of stopping copying online. They're basically trying to take the world's greatest copying machine, which is one of the greatest technological advances of all humankind, and the greatest weapon we have against the state and tyranny, and they want to restrict it and kill it and choke it off. I, th I think actually if the copyright industry had its way, they would destroy the internet. They hate it. Yeah, well, they probably would have done the same thing for uh, radios, and uh, they probably would have done the same thing for the phonograph. Um, also. The phonograph and uh, the printing press and yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, audio cassette recorders, the VHS. In fact, you know, the VHS case, that's, there's a Sony Betamax case uh, back in the 80s. Um, the Supreme Court ruled 5-4 to four to uphold the legality of using your own uh, VHS machine to record over-the-air TV broadcasts. Uh, so by one decision, uh, by one vote, we, we narrowly escaped uh, a, a rule that would have, in the name of copyright, it would have killed the entire way the movie and television and video rental and DVD business and now streaming business has, has evolved. Uh, it could have totally changed the entire um, movie, television, video consumption business. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, and well, at least it would have slowed slowed down development or diverted it in different different directions. Um, yeah, be different. yeah, and of course, at every stage of technological development, you hear uh, the warnings of the impending cat catastrophe. Well, this, if this technology is unleashed, you know, and its full potential is is just permitted to to, to enter into a world without without strict enforcement. It'll, it'll mean the end of art. It'll mean the end of, 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 of music, the end of, of movies, and so on. You know, we always hear this gloom and doom scenarios about how piracy is going to ruin civilization. Right. I think that if we're going to be hyperbolic, we need to go the other direction. We need to, uh, uh, we need to worry about the end of freedom and the end of Internet freedom and the end of civil liberties and the end of culture if copyright law gets expanded and enforced the way its advocates want it to be expanded. Yeah, literally understood. I mean, yeah, copyright is 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 to, uh, fundamentally totalitarian. Yeah, yeah. didn't you have a, t a tweet about that the other day that uh, got some yeah. attention? Well, it, it gets attention, but nowadays, I think you know, thanks to you, um, it's now I think very common for people to to question uh, c copyright in every respect. I mean, you know, John Stossel had a really good show on it. I mean, it was inconclusive in some way. 
But you went on there and made the case. Uh, that would have been inconceivable. Like 10 years ago, that John Stossel would have held a show raising questions about intellectual property, especially within the libertarian world. Um, copyright has, has been largely unquestioned outside just a handful of, of thinkers, uh, but for the most part. Uh, nowadays, it's completely rejected. Well, that's what always shocks me. Is so you have some libertarians who are kind of on the fence, and they'll say, well, patents are clearly a bad idea, but copyright is fine. And then when you point to an example like this, um, they'll say, well, I'm not in support of that. So <laughs> you yeah. never know what – they're never in support of any particular thing um, except people making music and making money somehow. That's almost, that's almost always true of defenders of any government regulation or institution or program, right? They don't actually defend the really existing thing. The thing that they defend is some abstraction that they've manufactured in their heads. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And they just brush aside the uh, the uh, the problems with it by saying, well, it could be done better. Yeah, yeah. We can have a like Put that theorist in charge. Well, thank you, Stefan, for hanging out with me. We should do this more often, don't you think? I'd love to. Let's do it. Okay. All Thanks, right. Man. Take care, my friend. Bye-bye.